Well, what a wonderful day yesterday was, and I'll talk about that here in just a moment, but boy, what a joy it is to join you again, Crossway. Thanks for welcoming me and having me here this weekend. I'm so grateful for Dave and for his leadership, doing such an amazing job in this community. Really grateful for your friendship, too. Some of you may not know, Dave and I had a chance to spend a few days together in Southern California a couple weeks ago. Not a bad place to meet up, right? And uh, his friendship has just been so, so good for my soul. And so thank you also for the invitation to come and just to be encouraged with all of you this weekend, this amazing, amazing faith community. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it was mentioned earlier, I was here in October and I showed you a picture of my family. I'd love to show you a picture again if I can. This is uh, my family, Pilar, and uh, my, my wife, Pilar, my daughter, Abigail, my son, Andrew, my mother and father-in-law in this picture as well, Glenn and Jenny. And this picture was from the Global 6K one year ago when we walked that. And as many of you know, you got to have that experience yesterday together. Uh, just such an incredible outpouring of love and care uh, towards some of the most vulnerable around the world. Uh, you know, many of you know by now, that young girls, largely young girls, will have to walk twice a day, six kilometers, that's nearly four miles, in search of a drinking water source. And oftentimes what they find is not clean drinking water. In fact, it's drinking water that carries bacteria and diseases that will cause early death for nearly 50% of children under the age of five in the villages where they live. But uh, you guys changed a lot of that yesterday. And so before we jump into the message, I just want to stop and say thank you. I want to thank about 74 of you who signed up for the Global 6K and decided to walk run. Some of you might have had to crawl. That's okay, right? In order to go six kilometers in solidarity with those young girls. And do you know that because of you did, because you did, because you moved your feet for the poor, you raised $8,366 for clean water. And now here's the deal. It cost Road Vision about $50 to bring clean water to one child. That means that you gave the gift of clean water to 167 children yesterday. And that is a big, big deal. And uh, so many of you did that in honor of a very specific child who in October chose you. You may remember that weekend that we shared together and how over the past seven months you have allowed your heart to break more deeply for the poor and the vulnerable around our world. And if you were here that weekend, uh, you remember that as you said yes to being chosen, you brought hope and are continuing to bring dignity to 129 children in Sembradores de Paz, El Salvador. And I'm guessing that if I stopped by many of your homes right now and walked past your refrigerator, I would see a picture hanging on your refrigerator, maybe not unlike this one. This is Michelle. She lives in Bartabo, Kenya. This is the young girl that our child sponsors. And my guess is there's a picture like that hanging on your refrigerator right now. And I'd also guess that as you pass that picture, you probably say a little prayer of transformation every day for that child. But I would also guess that it is your heart that is probably most likely being transformed. And so again, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. And I'm also excited to be with you this weekend so that I can invite you into another epic experience. Now, by now, you know at World Vision that we love to find new ways, innovative ways to grow in our faith and to have fun together and all at the same time boldly in the name of Jesus to address extreme poverty around the world. And today, I've got a really big idea. 
But my guess is when I share it with you, you're going to say, nah, that's not for me. That's not, that, one's, that one's not for me, Josh. Nice try. But here's the deal. I'm just going to ask over the next 20 minutes or so, just keep an open mind so that when I share it with you later on in the message, maybe, just maybe, you'd hear something whisper inside of you that would say, yes, yes, that's me. A moment that maybe answers a question for you. And the question is this. How do I make my life count? How do I make my life count? Several years ago, uh, our family sort of escaped a very cold winter by going to one of these indoor water parks. You ever been to one of these before? Nothing better for a young family right in the middle of the winter. I think my daughter was about 10. My son was about eight years old. And my kids love in the middle of the winter going to there, just sort of spending a day in, in sort of the, the warm waters of the pool. But what they love even more is when I give them permission to go to the arcade. Parents ever taken kids to these arcades before? You know what they are, right? Hundreds, thousands, it feels like, of these singing, blinking, quarter-wasting games, one after the other. I remember taking my daughter, Abigail, and uh, giving her a handful of tokens. And she sort of, you know, worked her way through that with laser precision, dropping a token here, inserting a token there, playing games for what felt like eight or nine minutes. And I remember at one point, though, she really slowed down, started to sort of deliberate a little bit. It seemed like she was walking aimlessly through this arcade. And I pulled her aside and said, Abby, what, what gives? She said, Dad, I've only got one token left. I've got to make it count. And uh, she sort of made her way then over to this large game, this big wheel. Think of like the, the price is right, right? You, that big wheel that you spin. And, uh, you know, it's like, goes round and round and round. The goal is to try to land on the jackpot, 1,000 tickets. And for Abby, I tried to talk her out of it. So listen, nobody ever gets 1,000 tickets on this game, right? It's your last token. Don't place it in this one. The most you could really hope to win is maybe about 10 tickets, but she was set on this being her last game. And so in the token went. And a big 10-year-old pull on that wheel and round and round and round it went until finally it landed on the jackpot. 1,000 tickets. I mean, she thought she had won the Powerball. And she turned to me and she said this. She said, Daddy, did I make it count? Did I make it count, Daddy? So how do we make our lives count? for something that is beautiful and meaningful in this world. Can we just think about that question this morning today? You know, there's a very surprising description of you, of your life, that is made of you in the scriptures. There's a term associated with you in the New Testament that if I had to guess when you hear this term, it's not a term that you will immediately initially associate with yourself. Now, I know there are other descriptions in the Bible that do. Loved, forgiven, accepted, redeemed. These are words that we embrace as a part of our Christian identity. But there is this other word there that I highly doubt you will immediately resonate with. But the word is this, and it's used of you. You know what that word is? Priest. Now, anybody connected to the Catholic tradition? Anybody raised maybe in the Episcopalian tradition? A few of you out there. My wife, Pilar, and I, as was described, uh, you know, 
met right here in this church, Crossway, in 2003. And I was serving at that time as an associate pastor, and uh, she was, like many of you, just sort of exploring her faith. She'd been raised in the Catholic tradition, was trying to come back into a relationship with God. And I'll never forget when we met, and we hit it off immediately, became fast friends. And after a while, I kind of wanted to ask her out, and she kind of hoped that I would, but she had one very complicated question, having grown up in the Catholic church, and it was this. Can you date the priest? Now, I wasn't a priest, of course, but when that's the tradition that you have grown up in, and that's all that you know, that is a really honest question. So as we started to date a bit, I remember our first date, I'll never forget, knocking on her front door, letting her open the door there, and I stood with a clerical collar and a long black robe. (laughs) No, of course, I did not do that. I did not do that. But it's true. That word, it is true. It is a word that is used to describe you. You and me. If you are a follower of Jesus, the apostle Peter who was one of the very first people to help create the very first church, he uses that word to describe you. I want you to listen to this scripture. Peter wrote this to some of the very first young Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling, and here it comes. Watch here. We've got this slide. Here it comes. Chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, That is to be set aside, set apart, different from everybody else. A holy people, God's instruments to do his work and to speak out for him. To tell others of the night and day different that he has made for you. Now, this is what you have been called to. The priestly work. And you just need to know, for the very first church, for the early church, this was a very big departure from what had typically been true. See, up until this time, the work of ministry was largely reserved for a few people who felt a special call, and those were the priests, and they did their work largely in a very specific place called the temple. And it was the priest's responsibility then to stand between people and and between God and to do the work of helping people make whatever necessary sacrifice needed to be made in order for them to have a right relationship with God, to be in good standing again with their creator. But something to know that when Jesus went to the cross, when he gave a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of his life, he reset that system. And he made a way for anybody who would put their trust and their hope in him alone, that they could be forgiven and free once and for all. And when he did that, he began to establish his presence no longer in that physical temple, but now his presence would dwell in you and me. Scripture says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where the power of God dwells. And as such then, you and I, we become the vessel through which the presence of God can change the world. Peter continued in chapter 4 of that letter that he wrote to those first Christians. He said this, he said, and as such, God has given you gifts. I mean, he wouldn't call you to something that he doesn't also equip you for, right? He calls you to be 
to be a, a, do the priestly work, and then he gives you a gift, each one of you, from his great variety of spiritual gifts, and then says this, manage them well. Make it count. Why? For me? No. So that the generosity of God can flow through you. You know, it makes me think of the recently retired CEO of World Vision, Dr. Richard Stearns. Just let me paint a picture for you a moment about Dr. Stearns. Dr. Stearns, um, you know, was someone who discovered early in his life that he had a gift, likely a spiritual gift of leadership. He had an aptitude for strategic thinking, a commitment to team building, a prophetic sense for what needed to be done in the future. And with time, his abilities sharpened and his experiences accumulated and his influence began to grow. And Fortune 500 companies started to take notice, like Mattel and others. And eventually, he would serve as the CEO of Lenox. You know Lenox, right? That's the china you buy that you don't ever let anyone eat on. And uh, after a while, even CEOs, though, wonder, how do I really make my life count? And one day the phone rang, and an executive coach reminded Rich of his passion for the oppressed and the marginalized of our world, and a new challenge was issued. Would ministry just be something for the few who stand on stages and teach from scriptures and lead in churches, is it reserved only to the temple? Or, or would a calling to ministry be something that would be placed upon anyone, everyone who follows after Jesus? And so Rich traded fine china for paper plates and decided to lead World Vision into becoming one of the largest Christian humanitarian organizations in the world, to leading, pulling together a team of colleagues who will bring clean water to a child every 10 seconds, who respond to the world's largest humanitarian disasters, who distribute more food aid than any other organization in the world. But in order to do so, it took Rich believing in his gut that there is no A-team and no B team in God's kingdom, just one team with one mission to do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, to reconcile people back to Jesus and then restore broken circumstances in his world. To go, like Matthew 28 says, to go to your neighborhood, to Paul and Susan who live down the street, to the young couple who just moved in next door, to go to a group of moms who sit at a playground and wait and talk while kids run and climb, to go to rescue missions, to serve the down and the marginalized in your city, to go to Afghan or Ukrainian refugees who are looking for a path forward, maybe to go to places as simple as your living room, gathered with friends in a small group to connect, to be inspired by a passionate pursuit of Jesus, and to do so bringing hope and offering love and representing Jesus, to drop in a token, give it a spin, and make it count. But there is this hurdle 
that all of us have to overcome when we are faced with that vision for our lives. There is this quiet whisper that echoes in our hearts, and the whisper is this, but who am I? Who am I? I mean, I could never do that. I could never be used by God to help someone else experience his transforming power. I could never lead a team or give a talk or organize an event or raise money or pull off something special. Who? Me? You ever heard that whisper before? Winston Churchill one time said that we are all worms, but I do believe I'm a glow worm. I know there's a whisper in your soul that says, who, me, but be a glow worm. I always find it interesting that whenever we sit before a big vision, there's always something inside of us. I don't know why this is. It's just sort of part of human nature, isn't it? There's something inside of us that always wants to think about what I don't bring, what I don't have, a scarcity mentality, way more than we're willing to think about what we do, what we do bring, what we do have. And I've been thinking about this in relationship to an encounter that Moses had with God in the Old Testament. Now, if you know the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, you know that Moses was one of the central figures there. In the first half of the Bible, he's the guy who's called by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. Moses is a guy who, just by the mention of his name, conjures up images of strength and courage and leadership just now, even 2,000, several thousand years later. But do you know that Moses wrestled with the same quiet whisper? He was a shepherd when God first put the vision in his heart. A rough and tumble man's man who slept in the open field with a dirt-stained Stetson, right, and a Carhartt jacket. I mean, this was a guy who, when God met with him, said, I want you to leave sheep, And I want you to march yourself into Pharaoh's courtyard, the most powerful man of the day, and challenge his authority. And in that moment, the whisper came. Moses said what many of us say. Who? Who? Me? I mean, who am I, Moses says in Exodus chapter 3, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people out of Egypt? The whisper is there. And he begins to raise several objections. He focuses not on what he has, not on how God will equip him. He focuses on what he doesn't bring, a scarcity mentality. He says, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, yeah, 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 this was just a vision. God never appeared to you and told you to do this. He says, God, I'm not even very good with words. I mean, I never have been. I I sort of stumble. I get tongue-tied. My words get all tangled up. Finally, Moses reaches a point where he says, listen, God, please, send somebody else. You ever been there before? It's like, I just don't have any excuses left. I just sort of throw up my arms and say, listen, Lord, please, anybody, but just not me. And then in that moment, God directs Moses to one of the most simple things. He asked Moses a profound question. He says, Moses, what's in your hand? Now, when you think of a shepherd, what image comes to your mind of what might be holding, he might be holding in his hand? It's a staff, right? A staff. Very common, common instrument for a shepherd to have. 
Shepherds were notorious for holding onto their staff for as long as, po- as possible. Moses, at this point in his story, has been a shepherd for 40 years. Maybe this is a 40-year-old dead piece of wood. And for Moses, he had his identity wrapped up in that staff. It was an emblem of his influence. It was the thing that he used to sort of move the sheep around to get his way, a part of his leadership ability there in the staff. It was his influence. It was also an emblem of his affluence. I mean, this is how he made his income, was being a shepherd. And so this staff had great meaning to him. It had this affluence sense to it, that this was how he would provide for his life. And it was that tool that God says, throw it down. Take what little thing you have, take what little thing you think you bring, release the grip that you keep around it, throw it down in Moses. Moses, watch what I will do. And Moses does. And when he threw that staff to the ground, instantly it turned into a snake. Something that was once inanimate, a dead piece of wood, now is wild, alive, unpredictable. And God says to Moses, reach down and pick that snake up by the tail, and he does, and in an instant it became a staff again. And here's what I want you to consider. You have been called by God to do priestly work in this world. No A team and no B team, just one team. And God has a gift that he's placed in you, an identity, some influence, some affluence. And as a treasured child of the most high God, you have significance beyond anything you could ever imagine. And now he's calling you to use that gift, to use that affluence, to use that influence, to be a glow worm in this world to reconcile people back to God and to restore broken circumstances in his world. And when you hear that voice of God in front of that vision say, who, me? I just want you to consider hearing God whisper, yes, you, you. And then to put it into practice. I know the thing that you hold in your hand may seem simple and insignificant to you, But when released into God's purposes, it becomes wild, alive, unpredictable. David, King David in the Old Testament, had a sling and a few stones to defeat the mighty Philistine army. The unnamed boy on the mountainside with Jesus had five loaves and two fish from which to feed 5,000. Peter had his testimony and the courage to speak, and God used it to build the church. We all have something in our hands, a little affluence, a little influence that God will use so that his generosity can flow through you. And there may be a whole host of different ways that you might be prompted to apply this message to your life, but I want to invite you in this next moment to hear a new soft whisper on how you could make your life count. Can I lay that big challenge out in front of you? I know you've been waiting. I told you earlier that I had big news, a big invite to bring you into today. And when I share this with you in a moment, I know what you're going to hear. You're going to hear this quiet little whisper. Maybe not so quiet. Maybe it'll be somebody next to you go, no, right? But I want you to push through that just for a moment to maybe consider if God would be prompting you to say yes. Are you ready for this? You're ready for it, I can tell. 
All right, here's the challenge. This year, I want to challenge you to run the New Hampshire Half Marathon. All right, now, I know, I know, I lost you. I lost you right there, right? It's like, wait a minute, Josh, wait, wait. You lost me because you used the word half marathon and run in the same sentence. I cannot do that. I'm out. I just want to hear, hear I want you to hear me say, yes, you can. Yes, you can. In fact, at World Vision, we have a training plan that will take you from the couch to the finish line, and then if you wish, right back to the couch again, all right? <laughs> it's a training plan that literally has trained over 100,000 people around the United States. In fact, 80% of the people who run with Team World Vision across the U.S. are first-time runners. They've never even run a 5K in their life, 80%. Gang, what I'm inviting you into is not for elite athletes. It's for everyday people like you and me. In fact, at World Vision, we call ourselves the back of the packers. We're not interested in finishing races quickly. We just want to finish races for vulnerable children. Because it's not about finishing first. It's not about your level of fitness. It's about the size of your heart to move your feet for the poor. And if you're still thinking, no way, Josh, not me, not me, I got to tell you about a few people who have gone before you. There's a slide here with three people. just want to introduce you for a second to Henry, Ron, and Kathy. Henry was 86 years old when he ran his first marathon, and I'm only asking you to run a half, right? In the middle there is, uh, is Ron. Ron was 300 pounds when he signed up to run with Team Road Vision. He did a lot more walking than, than running, but Ron finished for vulnerable kids. And then there's Kathy. Kathy's a school teacher. She uh, talks in her story about being described by labels like divorced, scattered, messy, depressed. But then she joined Team World Vision and found a community of people that poured into her. And over time, new labels emerged like disciplined, courageous, faithful. And I love it. She says that she wore a cape when she, run, she ran her marathon, and she wore it in her classroom so that she could remind her kids that uh, people can do hard things. See, you don't have to be an athlete. You don't even have to run. You don't have to like to, be ch you don't have to, like to run when you get chased, right? You just have to have an openness, a willingness to make your life count and to do it for children like grace. I'm going to tell you this story in closing. Uh, this is my good friend, Josh Folkerts. He lives in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, this is his sponsor child, Grace. And a few years ago, Josh had the honor of traveling to Bartabo, Kenya, where she lives. And they were together for a short time. And when Josh was with her, he asked her, so tell me about the impact that clean water has made in your community. And without hesitation, Grace responded, I want to be a lawyer. Now, Josh was just a little confused by that. You know, that, that was not the question that I asked you, kind of an awkward answer. I, I wanted to know about the impact that clean water has made in your community, not what you want to do when you grow up. And that's when Grace's mom jumped in and said, Josh, you don't understand. Grace was one of the young girls who had to walk six kilometers twice a day to retrieve dirty drinking water. 
And because of that, she could no longer go to school. She walked for water, spent her days doing that. But now that clean water has come to the community, that World Vision is there, as a result of that, do you know what she gets to do? She gets to go to school. She gets to lift her eyes and begin to dream again. And my friend Josh said that that moment marked him. And I wonder if it might mark you too. I wonder what it might look like if Crossway could put together a team right here that would run together in the New Hampshire Half Marathon so that the story of grace could be multiplied again and again and again. And I know right now you're thinking, I did not come to church thinking I was going to sign up for a half marathon. I don't think I can do this. Would you just give God the opportunity and would you listen closely to that whisper? Not the one that says, who me? But another whisper that might say, what if? What if I could do this and make an impact and change the life of a child forever? When you hear that voice, who, me, would you listen for a softer voice that says, yes, you? You?